You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Sadat's decision to go to Israel shattered the taboo against speaking to Israelis or even acknowledging the existence of a Jewish homeland. Both the foreign minister and the man Sadat had appointed to succeed him had resigned, protesting that Egypt would now be isolated in the Arab world. Sadat compounded the insult by timing his arrival for the eve of Eid al-Adha, one of the main holy days in Islam. On that day, the king of Saudi Arabia goes to unlock the door to the Kaaba, the cubicle stone building in Mecca, where all Muslims direct their prayers. I have always gone to the Kaaba to pray for somebody, never to pray against anyone, King Khalid said. But on this occasion, I found myself saying, Oh God, grant that the airplane taking Sadat to Jerusalem may crash before it gets there, so that he may not become a scandal for all of us. As the presidential motorcade climbed through the rocky hillsides towards Jerusalem, crowds along the highway sang, Havenu Shalom Aleikum, we've brought peace upon you. The Israelis had no armored limousine for Sadat, so they had borrowed one from the American ambassador. All along the way, people were openly weeping. Some wore T-shirts saying, all you need is love. The Egyptian entourage gaped at the scene. It was like being on another planet. The motorcade came to a halt at Jerusalem's King David Hotel, which Begin's irregulars had blown up during the British mandate three decades before. A crowd of 250 people waited in the lobby, crying out to Sadat. Across the street, the Korean at the YMCA played Getting to Know You. Lawrence Wright is a staff writer for The New Yorker and the author of six previous books of nonfiction, including The Looming Tower and Going Clear. His new book is 13 Days in September, Carter, Bagan, and Sadat at Camp David. Thank you for joining me, Lawrence. It's a pleasure to talk again, Rick. You know, I think that the genesis of this book plays an important part in why the book itself is so powerful. So talk about where this book came from, which isn't where your books often come from. <laughs> I think it's unique among book projects in that it came from a play. Rather than adapting a book to become a play, I, I started with a play. I got a call in 2011 from Gerald Rafshoon, who was Jimmy Carter's media advisor in the White House. And he wanted to propose that I write a play about Camp David. And his 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 pitch was, uh, this is when three men of religion, uh, a born-again Christian, an Orthodox Jew, and a pious Muslim, came together for 13 tumultuous days behind closed doors and came out with the only durable peace treaty in the Middle East. And that was a pretty persuasive <laughs> pitch. And it affected me in particular because I had lived in Georgia I was in Atlanta when Carter was governor and ran for president. And I'd lived in Cairo. I I taught at the American University there when Sadat became president. And as a reporter, I'd been to Israel several times for reporting jobs. So I felt, you know, that I had some familiarity with it. And also, I get so despairing sometimes, I guess as everybody does, about the prospect of peace in the Middle East. And I thought, this is a chance to look at one time when peace actually was accomplished, 
when all that middle, mental inertia that we have in our minds about Arabs and Jews can never be you know, good neighbors, all that was set aside and, and peace was actually accomplished. You know, one of the things that strikes me is that when you're doing a play, you have these three voices that you have to <clears throat> create, and you've created three amazing characters for this book who have great character arcs. Talk about discovering these people and weaving the character arcs in with the bigger historical picture and the smaller 13-day picture. Well, I suppose I knew Carter the best of the three, uh, but I did not know him very deeply, um, even though he had been governor uh, and I and, and knew something about his background. Uh, you know, he grew up in a little town called Archery, which is near Plains. And uh, Carter's were the only white family in a place where there were 55 other black families. And uh, Rosalind Carter told me that when Jimmy was a boy, his accent was indistinguishable from his black playmates. Uh, he ran for governor uh, the first time against Lester Maddox, who was one of the most racist figures in Georgia's history. And he lost to Maddox. And this was a crushing moment. And that's when he, was, he had his born-again experience. He was so despairing that his sister, who was an evangelist, helped him get back on his feet. And uh, he decided to run for governor again. Um, there was a, his main supporter was actually uh, an Iranian Jew named David Rabham, a, a wealthy uh, businessman from Savannah, who was also a pilot. And he would fly Carter around the state. Uh, and it, it's so they were together so much that Carter actually learned how to fly this little Cessna while Rabham took naps. And one time, the Carter was flying, and, and the, the engine died. And he looked, and he was out of gas. And so he punched uh, Rabham, tried to wake him up, and he couldn't. And so he really hit him. And he said, David, wake up. What's wrong? Uh, we're out of gas. And Rabham says, oh, then we're going to crash. And <laughs> he, let, he let that possibility linger for a moment. And then he, then he reached down and turned on the spare gas tank. And, you know, not a lot of people tease Jimmy Carter. Uh, he's not teasable. But uh, he was very much in Rabham's debt. And a little while later, as they were flying along, he said, David, the campaign's nearly over, and it looks like I might actually be, become the governor. What can I do for you? You've done so much for me. And Rabham said, um, Jimmy, I don't, I don't need anything from you. What I want is for you to address the racial discrimination that has held this, this state back for so long. And so Carter reached down and he picked up a flight map and he wrote on it, I say to you that the time for racial discrimination is over. And he handed it to Rabham and he said, if I'm inaugurated, I will make this statement. And Rabham said, sign it. <laughs> so he signed it and he did make that statement and it got him on the cover of Time magazine. Uh, that was uh, the beginning of his presidential candidacy. We often think of history as being boring, and that's because history is presented as facts. A series mm -hmm. is just a collection of facts. And what this book does is fill in the facts with story. You have a great series of facts here. Make no mistake about yeah. it. What happened was great. 
But I think that what makes this a compelling piece of reading and literature is your ability to wrangle all this stuff into a story. So I'd like you to talk about finding the story through lines with Carter and Bagan mm-hmm. and Sadat and these characters and what happened. Well, you know, there were three very flawed men. Um, you know, we think about perfect partners for peace. I, if you look at who was there, Jimmy Carter... Although when he got elected, I have to say this, his popularity was higher than Reagan's ever was. It was 75%, but it was a very steep decline. Uh, by the time of Camp David, he was a flailing, unpopular president. Anwar Sadat was, um, he had been an assassin uh, during the British mandate. He it was part of what he called his murder society. Mainly what they did was try to pick off British soldiers who were wandering in the streets of Cairo drunk and alone at night. But Sadat turned their attention to political assassinations. He tried to kill the prime minister of Egypt twice because he was, in Sadat's opinion, a collaborator with the British. And they did succeed in killing another government minister. And he was also a Nazi sympathizer. Yeah, he was, his favorite characters were, you say, Hitler and Gandhi. Yeah, <laughs> there's, a, there's a pairing. I mean, when, when Anwar Sadat was 12 years old, Gandhi came through the Suez Canal on his way to London to negotiate the fate of India. And this made an immense impression on Anwar Sadat. This small brown man uh, could uh, overturn the, the British Empire. And Sadat took off his clothes and started wearing an apron and uh, made a spindle for himself and began spinning thread. And uh, his father said, you know, he's down on the roof of his house and his father said, you know, you're only just getting pneumonia, you know, so come on down. Stop that nonsense. But he also had a great admiration for Hitler, as a lot of Egyptians did at the time during World War II because they were fighting the British and the Egyptians were occupied. But... Um, he he actually fell in with a couple of Nazi spies, and um, and he served five years in prison. Uh, it's something he shared with with Menachem Begin. Uh, they were they both spent time in prison. Uh, they both had blood on their hands. Begin had been born in this little Polish town called Brisk, and his earliest memory was of Polish soldiers flogging a Jew. Uh, when the Nazis came to Poland. They, they rounded up and executed 5,000 Jews in Brisk. Menachem's mother was uh, in the hospital with pneumonia, and the Nazis went through the hospital and murdered the patients in their beds. His father was tied up, and his pockets were loaded down with rocks, and he was drowned in the River Bug. And Menachem was hiding in Lithuania at that time. Uh, but he spent two years in Stalin's prisons before Stalin released all the Poles to fight the Nazis. And he made his way to Palestine, and he became the head of Irgun, which was a terrorist organization which fought against the British. And one of their many actions was to blow up the King David Hotel, which a part of it was a, a nerve center for the British mandate. Ninety-one people were killed. And later, during the war for Israel's independence, uh, it was Ergun, Begin's organization, that attacked Deir Yassin, this little Palestinian village, uh, which was a massacre. And it prompted the vast migration of Palestinians out of Israel. 700,000 Palestinians left Israel after Deir Yassin. So these were men 
very complicated, you know, not ideal partners for peace by any measure. But somehow they, well, I think one thing they had in common was they had a lot of political courage. You know, it, one of the things that, as I was reading this book, I found myself really in a state of suspense from time to time because these talks are really tumultuous. Um, and this is kind of odd because when you're reading a work of history, you know what happened. Right. And I realized afterwards when I was thinking about this that when you're writing a novel, you want to create a sense, you, a suspension of disbelief. You want to, if you're Stephen King, you want to make people believe that Carrie can levitate things. Yeah. As a writing nonfiction, what you have to create is a suspension of belief. You have to convince the reader that they don't know what's going to right. happen to keep that tension and put them so much in the place of the characters, of uh, uh, the participants of history who don't know what's going to yeah. happen. And I think you do a really great job. At, once we get into these talks, it, it, they immediately blow up. As a, the first day, Sadat and Begin are screaming at each right. other. Right. It was it, Carter had a very mistaken idea about how this was going to work out. And it, actually, you know, Camp David was Rosalind's idea because he was going to do some international conference in Geneva that was doomed from the start. And while she and, and Jimmy were at Camp David, she said, why not bring them here? So that's where it all originated. And he had the notion that if he could just get these two honorable men together, uh, isolated on a mountaintop in Maryland, uh, they would get to know each other. They would come to like each other and trust each other. <laughs> and by by the second day, uh, he had to physically block them from leaving. And uh, and they were Rosalind said you could hear them screaming all over. Uh, they were just at each other's throat. And the, by the third day, he had to separate them physically. They they could not be in the same room. And uh, so Carter began this kind of golf cart diplomacy of going from one cabin to another, uh, mediating between their perspectives. You know, one of the things I think that is interesting is the player in this book who I was didn't know very well, I didn't really know any of them very well I, going in compared to how I felt going out, but I thought that what you did with Sadat, his character arc is amazing. It's like a, all three of these characters are tragic heroes, I think. What, in a classic, if this were a novel, these would all be tragic heroes. And Sadat's character arc is really interesting because he's completely opaque to those around him. Yeah. But as a reader, I think you let us inside. And I think that's an interesting contrast to be able to pull off. He was... Uh unique in not just in Egypt in the whole Arab world of uh, believing that peace with Israel was possible or even desirable when he went to Jerusalem uh, two of his foreign ministers resigned one after the other and then his third foreign minister uh, Muhammad Ibrahim Kamel resigned at Camp David there was so much dissension within the Egyptian delegation that Carter, one night, he woke up convinced that they were going to kill him. 
And he called, uh, <laughs> no, it's crazy, the idea that the Egyptian delegation would murder their leader at Camp David. But he got Zbigny, uh Brzezinski out at four in the morning in his pajamas to beef up the Secret Service detail around Sadat's cabin to protect him from his own people. I, I think uh, there are so many really interesting details in this book that really kind of make it stand out. Uh, going into Camp David, it was a big news event. Yeah. And but once they got there, they wanted to clear everybody out, and they thought they had. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, one night they had a a party, and uh, you know they, they they invited the press to stand, you know, like aside and watch the delegates watching the Marine silent drill and so on. And then they put the press back on the buses, and everybody was back on the bus except for one person, Barbara Walters who uh, was finally discovered hiding in the women's restroom. So she was desperate to get her scoop, but she never did. Uh, I think uh, the other, you know, there's some details, too, having to do uh, with the Israelis. Now, Sadat was open to, he was making, he made this huge gesture to to go to Israel. And and this was a, this is a landmark thing. And, the way you describe it, his people felt like they were on an alien planet when they right. got there. Well, you know, the truth is the Egyptians and the Israelis, although they, you know, the flight time was, you know, less than an hour. So they're very close neighbors. Uh, but they really didn't know each other at all. They've been at a war for 30 years, but they had very little experience of each other. And there were some Egyptian Jews in Israel who had, who had left Egypt that's about all the Egyptians uh, that any Israelis knew. And as far as the Egyptians were concerned, they they had no commerce with the Israelis at all, uh, only as enemies. They only knew them in that way. So bridging this psychological divide was the main thing that, that Sadat did, that an Arab would make the gesture, cross over, courageously stand in front of the Knesset, the Israeli parliament, and tell them of, you know, the America, of, their, of the Arab desire for peace. Um, the Israelis didn't know, honestly, what to make of him. When he, uh, they weren't sure that Sadat was actually going to be on the plane. There was some talk that it might be full of explosives, that they'd be full of terrorists. The, the Ben-Gurion airport was surrounded with snipers just in case it wasn't Sadat. And uh, the the Israeli orchestra, they didn't know how to play the Egyptian national anthem. They didn't have sheet music, so they had to tune into Radio Cairo to try to pick up the tune. Uh, it was, and then you know this this airplane appears in the sky after Shabbat, and uh, uh, the floodlights pick it up, and people were crying openly, and you know it was it was an unparalleled event in Middle Eastern history. Now, while Sadat's was the first open attempt to make peace, there had been some backdoor attempts at peace, and one of them reads like something out of Get Smart. Yeah, it, well, you're absolutely right. It was the nuttiest thing. Sadat had a deputy prime minister. His name was Hassan al-Tahami, and um, he was a Sufi mystic. 
Sadat had... Uh, this guy is great. He's hey, a great well, character. Nobody could understand what it was about him that it was so enchanting to Sadat. They had been revolutionary officers together. So they, was, you know, they were brothers in conspiracy. So there, there may have been something. But uh, he was... Tohami was constantly uh, talking to uh, angels and genies. Occasionally the prophet Muhammad would come in the room and he'd stand up and have a conversation. Um he he wants uh, the first day at Camp David. He was holding court, and uh, he was talking about how he had gathered such physical control over his body that he was able to stop his heart on command. And once, when he was the Egyptian ambassador to Austria, uh, he went to the doctor for a physical, and the doctor said, uh, "General Tahami, I can't help you. You're dead." <laughs> <laughs> and Tommy, oh, I forgot to turn my heart back on. So he was entertaining everybody with these absurd and delusional stories. This was the man that Sadat delegated uh, a year before Camp David to go to Morocco at the invitation of the king to meet with Moshe Dayan, the most iconic Israeli figure at the time, and uh, for backdoor talks. Even America didn't know about this. And... Um, so they met with the king, and uh, Tohami, being who he is, decided that Moshe Dayan was the Antichrist. And, uh, uh, but he came home, and he told Sadat the Israelis had promised to return the Sinai Peninsula. And uh, so when Sadat went to Jerusalem, he thought he had Sinai in the bag. And so he mentioned this to Begin and Diane when he arrived in Jerusalem, and they were stunned. Uh, but by that time, the eyes of the world were on Sadat. So the whole peace process probably got started because of the delusions of a madman. <laughs> well, too, when Sadat did that, he got a lot of acclaim. Yeah. He was on Time magazine. Right. And also, he started buying into his own publicity. He's constantly remaking himself to be even grander. He he certainly had ideas of grandeur. And I think, you know, going back to being a child, um, there was a story he told about himself that uh, he was a young boy, and, and he followed some older boys, and they were going swimming in this irrigation ditch. And uh, they all jumped into the to the water, and he jumped in as well. And then he remembered, oh, I can't swim. <laughs> and as a child, his he said his thought was, if I die, Egypt will have lost Anwar Sadat. Wow, <laughs> what kind of mind uh, conceives of that? But obviously he had the idea that destiny was going to take him for a big ride. It really did. On the other hand, you have a really fascinating picture of Menachem Begin, who, as you mentioned earlier, as a child, he just became quickly inured to the suffering of others. Yeah. He was this kind of a small kid. He was the kind of kid who would get beat up. But he had some kind of force within him. He could stand up and speak like an angel and really get people on his side. He was a, a, an amazing and sometimes dangerous rhetorician. And uh, he he was a he was a populist and verging on demagogue, but he was dedicated with every bit of his soul to saving and preserving the Jewish people. This was his lifetime mission. When he was 15 years old, 
a man named Vladimir Jabotinsky came to Poland and and the sold out event, but Menachem Begin crept in and, and got into the orchestra pit to listen to Jabotinsky, who was the founder of what's called the Revisionist Movement in in Israel, which is essentially that uh, it's not just the Israel that it belongs to the Jews, but also uh, what is now the Kingdom of Jordan. Uh, one of their sayings is, there are two banks of the Jordan. This bank is ours, and the other is too. Uh, but uh, Begin became his primary acolyte. And um, when uh, when he got to uh, Israel, he became the head of uh, Irgun, which was an outgrowth of the the paramilitary organization that uh, Jabotinsky had founded. It's ironic uh, that he himself was such an effective terrorist and well-versed in the use of terrorism. And there's some of the words he said that you can just, as you read them, you say, boy, this just came back to haunt them, didn't it? You know, uh, Begin was, in many ways, he invented uh, the modern terrorist playbook. Uh, for one thing, he had a great flair for drama. He, you know, the idea of multiple simultaneous bombings that al-Qaeda later copied came from him. He had a talent for understanding uh, what would get in the news and what would get under people's skin. For instance, uh on one occasion, the British mandate officers flogged several Jews who they were punishing for what they thought were terrorist acts. And so Begin captured a couple of uh, British officers and had them flogged. And uh, this went all over the world. You know, this was a... Uh, and then the British hanged three Ergun terrorists who had been convicted of crimes and Bacon hanged two uh, British sergeants and booby-trapped their bodies. These kinds of actions broke the spirit of the British mandate. And what Bacon proved is that terror can work. And uh, after, the, after the fall of the Taliban, when the American troops went into Kandahar, uh, they found in, in bin Laden's library a copy of Bacon's memoir, Revolt, uh, I think that uh, Bruce Hoffman, who's uh, one of our foremost terrorism scholars, said that uh, that Bin Laden had read it in order to see the evolution between a terrorist, from being a terrorist to being a statesman. Well, what's so interesting about Begin, for all his facility with grand gestures and speech making and the theater of terrorism, when it came to being a statesman, he was an ultimate nitpicker move an inch to it. You know, he was the the uh, perfection of Zeno's paradox. He'd get it, go halfway, then mm-hmm. halfway again. He'd never yeah. get anywhere. He, uh, Carter uh, was extremely frustrated with him. And um, Sam Lewis, who was the U.S. ambassador to Israel, said that, you know, he was a great Begin admirer. But he said, you know, he had all these skills, but principally what he would do is if you if if he disagreed with you, he would simply drive you up the wall. Uh, you know, he he was such an obstructionist. And, um, you know, I, I said that the Egyptian delegation was very much opposed to Sadat because they didn't want him to make peace. And 
It was the opposite situation in the Israeli delegation. All of the Israelis were more in peace, favor of peace than was Begin. So they were constantly trying to make him less radical, less obstructionist. And um, I think it's interesting, though, Begin knew their points of view when he selected them. So it could be that he brought them to Camp David in order to help him make peace. Well, one of the things I think that is interesting, at one point you describe the the birth of Israel and the failure of, to at that time make a Palestinian state, which and you kind of envision a little bit of alternative history. Yeah. And I, I think what is interesting to me about that was that you show that this the power of the, of the, the thought experiment how it some considering the past, alternate to versions of the past can inform our vision of the present, mm-hmm. which this whole book, you just read this book and you cannot get anything that's happening today mm-hmm. out of your mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, you know, I, I, it happens that I'm the same age as Israel. I was born in 1947 when the UN decided to partition uh, the the mandated Palestine into two entities, one the state for the Jews and the other Palestine. And um, we've come so far in in that time, uh, but now people think that this war, you know, this conflict between Arabs and Jews is eternal, that it's irresolvable. But since I can speak as a... A, a contemporary of the state of Israel. In my lifetime, I grew up in the segregated South, and we have a black man who's president. Uh, it was a time of apartheid, and that's gone. Uh, it was a time of the Cold War, and now the Soviet Union is dissolved. History can change. Things, None of those things did we think at the time when I was a young man that they would ever change, and they've all you know, radically changed. So... Peace can come to the Middle East. And that's one of the things that I would like to do in this book is awaken people to the idea that it's not impossible. And Camp David was one moment in history when three very determined men found a way to make peace. And and that's what's so interesting is that how determined they were to make peace, but how in many ways ill-suited they were to even be together. Even Carter, who we think of as the nicest guy in the world, you know, seem even-handed. You give a very different picture of him in this yeah. book as being subject to frustration and just impatience. And, you know, he he even made the he started out wrong. Yeah, and, and, and fury, I think, is another thing. You saw a lot of that. There were, there were a couple of moments uh, that were defining for Jimmy Carter. First of all, I think of him as being, uh, you know, approaching this from a purely Christian idea. He, th- he told me he thought that God had placed him in that high office in order to bring peace to the Holy Land. And I said, well, you're quite a student of the Bible. I mean, he had just taught his 550th Sunday school lesson when I met him. And I said, what makes you think that God wants peace in the Holy Land, you know? And uh, he said, well, we follow the Prince of Peace in the New Testament. So I, I picture this as being very much a New Testament man in the company of two very Old Testament figures. And uh, he, he really thought if he could just get them alone, uh, you know, they could figure it out 
by themselves. And it became really clear that wasn't going to happen. And he had to do something he didn't want to do, which was to present an American plan. In other words, he had to put America on the table. And um, when Begin came, he really, at that point, you know, when he first came to Camp David, he could have walked away. It would have been fine with him. And Sadat really needed, he wanted Sinai back. He really had something at stake. But Begin felt that he could leave. And um, But once it became a question of the relationship with the United States, suddenly all parties were far more focused. Begin, at, at one point, uh, Carter told him if he was going to, you know, if he left the conference, if he broke up the conference, he said, I'm going to make sure the American people know who's at fault. I'm going to go to the Congress tomorrow and tell them that it was it was because of you and your obstruction. And he even had a speechwriter write, a, it's hard to imagine, a speech in which Carter asked the Israeli people to vote down their government. And, uh, and then on another occasion, Sadat, had ordered the helicopter. He was leaving. He had packed his bags. And uh, Carter said he had never been angrier in his life. And he went to Sadat, who they were close friends. And he said, if you do this, you know, your relationships with the United States will be an end. Our friendship will be over. And, you know, in a, if there's another war, you know, we will be on Israel's side. Egypt will be alone and friendless in the world. Do you really want this? And, uh, you know, it was a it was a cowshed moment for Sadat. And so through such forceful behavior, Carter was able to keep them at Camp David, and then they were able to make concessions to the United States they couldn't make to each other. You know, I, I think that the, the ebb and flow in these scenes in the in the camp, you do a great job of weaving that in with the ancient history and the new history. Yeah. And I, one of the things that I found fascinating was this idea that we have three men from three very different religions, Jewish, Muslim, and, and Christian, all together. And there's a battle between their personal faith, which might not be exactly map on, to right. their religion, yeah. and I, and they're as rep- representing their religions, but they're also playing out their own personal faith. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. Here they were, very religious men, and they came together to solve a problem that religion had largely caused. And uh, but they wouldn't be there if if Carter hadn't thought that God put him there in order to have this peace in the Holy Land. So religion played a very volatile role uh, in creating Camp David, and but it was also the force that separated these points of view. You also point out, too, that history is full of victories, it's full of wars, it's full of failures, it's full of battles. It's not so full of negotiating peace settlements. <laughs> it's, yeah, like uh, Harold Saunders, who was uh, Deputy Secretary of State at the time, uh, when the Camp David process was about to go under uh, go underway, he went down to the State Department historian and said, has this ever happened before in the history of American diplomacy? And they said, yeah, one time uh, Teddy Roosevelt uh, brought, in, during the Russo-Japanese War, he brought envoys from Russia and Jap- Japan together to the Portsmouth Navy Yard. And 
managed to hammer out a peace agreement between the two of them. And Teddy was the first American, American, first American to win the Nobel Peace Prize. Before that, they're not, they're just not a, I, I look back to maybe the 15th century, uh, there's a pope, uh, Alexander VI, I think, who decided to mediate between Spain and Portugal, and he divided the globe between the New World, which was uh, North and South America, and 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 the African continent uh, that was going to be all for Portugal. The New World was going to be Spain. But when the Pope drew the line, he didn't realize that Brazil stuck out over the, the line, and that's why they speak Portuguese in Brazil to this day. Uh, subsequently, there have been a couple of instances, you know, George Mitchell resolving the, uh, the Northern Ireland crisis, the Soviets working in Tashkent with, the, with India and Pakistan. But honestly, I'm talking about on one hand, you can count the number of instances where genuine peace has been negotiated. And how many times are we led into wars such as right now? when our president is talking about bringing us back into war in, in, in Iraq, when wars are continually going to go on and on and on as long as there's not, there's not a reconciliation. And we're not hearing about that. There are not any real peace efforts going underway right now. And the Middle East is crying out for them. That's one of the things I think that's, as you read this book and see how much these people... Each of these men had to work against their staff, their own inclinations, the populations of their nations, and the politics of their nations yeah. to do this. I mean, this was really difficult. So talk about a little bit about the politics of each nation, how, I mean, these men were risking their reputations in many, many different ways. Well, just to... You know, set the scene with Sadat. I, I was living in Cairo uh, at the time that Gamal Abdel Nasser, the president, died, and Vice President Sadat became the president. And uh, he was regarded universally as kind of a clown. Um, for instance, during the revolution, he was at the movies uh, seeing a, a double feature, and he missed it. Uh, and uh, everybody thought that you know the first strong man who comes along will push him aside. And he surprised everybody by um, rounding up a lot of the corrupt Nasser cronies and throwing them in prison. And then uh, when I was living in Egypt, we had no diplomatic relations with Egypt. There were only a couple of hundred Americans in the whole country. But there were thousands of Soviets, you know, Russians everywhere. Sadat expelled them. This was stupefying. And... Um, then uh, when he made that speech in, in the Egyptian parliament that he was willing to go to the ends of the earth, even to the Knesset, and you know if he could save another Egyptian soldier's life. Well, everybody applauded, even Yasser Arafat, who was there in the parliament. It wasn't even reported in the newspapers. Nobody believed it. But two weeks later, his plane lands at Ben-Gurion Airport. You know, he was uh, the kind of person that was willing to take very dramatic risks to achieve what he felt was necessary. And he'd act, he was an autocrat, uh, and he was, you know, so he could get away with it. Um, 
in the political context of the time, he was kind of a modern pharaoh. But Begin came, it was in a different context altogether. He was already, always an outsider in Israeli politics. Uh, David Ben-Gurion, the first prime minister of Israel, called him a little Hitler, a fascist, a racist who wants to kill all the Arabs. Uh, and that's how many Israelis thought of him uh, until uh, 1973 when Sadat sent the Egyptian army across the Suez Canal and really shook Israel to the core. Um, then uh, Israelis began to turn to Begin as a as a possible strong man who could resurrect that feeling of invulnerability that Israel had enjoyed so briefly after the 1967 war. And then finally Sadat, I mean finally Carter. Carter was... Um, he had strong qualities that were both his assets and his liabilities. Uh, he was a micromanager. And, you know, he was famously interested in uh, who, you know, what hours his staff was playing tennis. He, you know, managed the court times. Uh, he would have staff meetings and he would go through, uh, you know, subjects you know, alphabetized from abortion to zero-based budgeting. And he seemed to have no sense of priority. Uh, but that sense of micromanaging turned out to be essential at Camp David. Uh, Hans Mark, who was uh, later uh, in the CIA and NSA director, but at the time he was the um, head of the National Reconnaissance Office. While Camp David was going on, he got a call saying, Carter wants a, a big map of Sinai. So he had a big map printed up. And they said, no, <laughs> a big map, like 17 by 20 feet, uh, the size of the room that Carter was in. They laid it out on the floor and got down on his hands and knees so he could study every little detail of the Sinai Peninsula. And, and he, he absorbed it entirely. He, there was no one at Camp David who had a better command of the facts than Jimmy Carter. So in that case, that kind of micromanaging the minutiae that he was willing to engage in was essential. You know, one of the things that I thought was I found really interesting was the sense of Carter and Begin, the way they had had to negotiate with one another in terms of just getting their personalities to work together. Yeah. Carter and Begin really didn't like each other. And uh, uh, Carter did eventually believe that Begin had to give up more than Sadat at Camp David. I mean, after all, he gave up Sinai. Uh, he had made a pledge that he was going to retire and be buried in one of those settlements, Israeli settlements in Sinai. And, and uh, he, he was haunted by the idea that he would be the prime minister who made Israel less secure by forfeiting this strategic barrier that Sinai represented. And yet he could also be the prime minister who brought peace between Israel and Egypt. It was an agonizing, existential question for him. Uh, after Camp David, 
Begin and Sadat actually got along better than uh, than Begin and Carter. And Carter went back, I think it was the 10th anniversary of Camp David. And um, by this time, Begin was a recluse. Uh, for the last nine years of his life, uh, he lived alone. Uh, his wife had died. He, he never went out. Very few people saw him. And um, so there was a gathering in Israel of the veterans of Camp David. And Carter said to Begin's uh, uh, longtime assistant, Yechel Khadashai, I would really like to talk to the prime minister. And so Khadashai put in a call. And uh, so Begin came on the line and said, you know, hello, Mr. President. And uh, Carter said hello. And Begin said, how is Mrs. Carter? And he said, she's fine. And he said goodbye. <laughs> Those were the last words exchanged between them. They saw each other at Sadat's funeral, but they didn't speak. Once they hammered out something that looked like a peace agreement, the only way they could do it was to leave a bunch of stuff off to the side right. in these series of letters yeah. that have haunted the world ever since, the settlements. Well, the, the last night of the Camp David uh, meeting, the 12th night, um, Carter and Begin had a conversation that went on late, late, late. Carter had said, this is the last night. And um, there was a... Moshe Diane and Aron Barak were also in the room with the Israelis, and, and Cy Vance, uh, Carter's secretary of state, was present. And Carter believed that he got Begin to agree to stop settlement building in the West Bank until the, the dispute with the Palestinians had been resolved. And Begin was supposed to supply a letter uh, stating his intention. So the next day, Sunday, uh, the signing was going to be held at the White House, and uh, Barack presented uh, Carter with this letter and Carter said, you know, this, doesn't, this isn't what we agreed to. Uh, and it, Begin said that, you know, he, there would be a pause for like three months uh, until the resolution with the Egyptians had been implemented. And he said, no, this has to do with the Palestinians and uh, the pol Palestinian part of the accord. And Barack agreed that that was true. And so Carter said, well, bring me the letter that I asked for. But then they went ahead and signed the accords. And and uh, Carter never did get the letter that he asked for. Uh, to this day, he thinks that Begin lied to him. Uh, Barack took notes at that meeting. They're, they're not clear. Uh, Begin agreed to consider it. Both Carter and Vance believe that they... Uh, that Begin had agreed to it, and I went back and looked at uh, the, you know, this the various drafts. There were twenty-three drafts that Carter had produced during the Camp David of the final accord, and the settlement halt is always in the section of the accords having to do with the Palestinians. So, in, in terms of documents, the truth is with Carter. You know, uh, when we read this. It's so amazing to see that with all the conflict within the congregations themselves, we have 
fascinatingly, Butrus Butruskali yeah. <laughs> shows up with the Egyptians. Later the Secretary General of the UN. Later the Secretary General of the UN. We have the conflicts within Begin's camp with, with uh, Moshe Dayan, who is this really wants peace. He's a he's a warrior. He really wants peace. After all these conflicts within between, we do get some kind of peace. And as you observe, that agreement has not been violated to this day. Thirty five years later, yeah, it's a. You know, for the first 30 years of Israel's existence, there were four wars. Five, if you count the what they call the, the War of Attrition, uh, which was going on when I was in Egypt. So near continual warfare with its neighbors, but especially with Egypt, and not a single violation of the treaty since then. It's a testament to how well-crafted that portion of the Accords is. It's an unloved treaty on both sides. And I think that just indicates how hard it was, what sacrifices these men had to make in order to come to an agreement. It's The reason it's not been violated is that each side understands that the costs of war are so much greater than those of peace. And when you said it was an unloved treaty by both sides, that just makes me think of, you know, the idea of whenever legislation is passed in the U.S. that the Democrats and the Republicans hate. Everybody thinks, well, that must be a pretty darn good piece of legislation. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> uh, the, Carter told me that uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu accosted him once in Israel and blamed him for forcing Israel to return Sinai. So you can see there's still bitter feelings uh, in Israel about the sacrifice they had to make. And and in Egypt as well, you know, Israel has never really been welcomed. And yet I think the two sides right now are closer than they ever have been, and that wouldn't be possible without that treaty. Sadat's life, his art, character arc in this book is, is compelling and tragic. Talk about what happened to him. Well, after Camp David, you know, I really think that signing those accords, he signed his death warrant. Um, when when Sadat became president, I remember uh, what a shock it was that he released the Muslim brothers from prison. Nasser had rounded up so many thousand of these people and just thrown them in jail. And Sadat featured himself. He called himself the first man of Islam, and he was very pious. And he thought he was inoculated against this kind of radical form of Islam. But he he didn't he really didn't understand he hadn't taken the measure of the extremism that had been set loose in Egypt, and in part because of the Camp David Accords. There were other things going on. Uh, you know, he was Sadat was very progressive on the subject of women's rights, and uh, he ridiculed the idea of the hijab, um, the head covering that. None of my female students in when I was teaching in Cairo wore the hijab, and now they all do practically. And and Sadat saw this uh, wave of conservatism with some concern, and uh, but he he had a way of, of belittling what people held very dear, and um, so there were a lot of currents in Egypt at the time that eventually manifested in his assassination. And then, you know, the leaders of the world came 
the Egyptians didn't mourn him. Um, it was an interesting contrast. When, when Nasser died, I remember the, the city was in shock and in mourning. And um, I, I remember seeing the, the parade uh, leading his casket across the Qasr al-Neil bridge. And the, the bridge was actually vibrating as the people tried to uh, get to the casket. And the police had to beat a path through the it was, you know, they had nightsticks swinging as all the leaders of the world, uh, you know, traps through Cairo. None of that with Sadat. Uh, it was, you know, done at the same uh, military base where he was killed. And the bullets were still, the bullet holes were still evident in the viewing stand. And um, the leaders of the world arrived and uh, there was a plot to assassinate them. And one of the members of the plot was Ayman al-Zawahri, uh, who later became number two and is now the, number, the leader of al-Qaeda. And he was uh, caught on his way to the airport when he tried to escape but, and spent uh, a couple of years in prison. We live in a time now where it's arguably the Middle East is leading us rapidly tor- towards World War III again as it did, you recount there a couple of yeah. times in the past. I'm wondering what you see as a possibility for something like 13 days in September happening again. Well, it, there are some lessons I think that we can draw from Camp David, you know, primarily that peace is possible. You know, that's been, it's such a frozen idea. But we have to set aside the negativity that surrounds the process of peace in the Middle East. We have to also understand that we're not going to have perfect people come along and make peace. We're going to have to work with the people that we have. And if you look at the, you know, the failing president, the, the, the assassin and the terrorist, uh, if they can make peace, uh, then I think other people can if they can achieve the same degree of political courage. Timing, timing is not as important as people often say. In Camp David, you know, the wounds of war were still very fresh. And Carter certainly didn't have the kind of political standing to, you know, that you would think he would need to force such an agreement. And also, I think that Camp David is very important to realize that America, America's contribution was essential because these two entities could not make peace with each other. They had to make concessions to the United States in order to come to an agreement they both wanted but couldn't make on on their own. America's contribution wasn't war. It wasn't soldiers. It was peace. It was peace, and it's lasted. You know, I... I think right now we're we're in a position, you know, we're in a time where we're talking constantly within a certain realm of logic, and it is the logic of war, and uh, so that if you have uh, rockets flying out of Gaza, then the logical response is a massive retaliation to stop that, and that makes sense. But if you don't have peace, rockets are always going to fly out of Gaza. Uh, there's too much despair to ever stop that kind of activity. And we have two halves of Islam that are in, in a civil war with each other, the Sunnis and the Shiites. And the 
problems we're seeing in Iraq right now and Syria are simply manifestations of a wider civil war. And we can try to degrade ISIS as the president would like us to do, but you're not going to make any real difference in that region until you change these warring ideologies, especially uh, coming out of Saudi Arabia and Iran. And they're funding these uh, proxy terrorist groups ranging from Hezbollah, Hamas, al-Nusra, al-Qaeda, you know, ISIS. They're, they're all the children of this larger conflict. And nobody's talking about that kind of reconciliation. Uh, until you resolve the problems inside Islam, you're going to constantly see this. I've been speaking with Lawrence Wright. His new book is 13 Days in September, Carter, Begin, and Sadat at Camp David. Thank you for speaking with me, Lawrence. It's been an honor. Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.